1: From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and you are listening to the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a normal book club, except you don't have to share your snacks. I am here with Kylie Reed, the author of Such a Fun Age, which was also a at Book Club pick. Kylie, hello. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for
2: having me. Oh, my
1: gosh. I am so excited to have you. We are also joined by Abby West, who's an editor at Audible. Abby, hey. Hello. I'm also happy to be here. I think this is just going to be the most fun. I'm pumped. Let's do it. It's going to be such a fun time. Get it, Kylie? Get it? (laughs) I'm sorry. I had to. I've never heard that ever. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we are also going to hear from a bunch of you. We got a lot of really great voicemails this time, and I can't wait to listen to them. So this month we are talking about The Vanishing Half. It is the second book by Brit Bennett. It came out earlier this month and pretty much like instantly hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, which was very exciting to see. Um, The short version of like the plot is that this is about two light skinned black twins, Della and Desiree, who grew up in a small town in Louisiana And they run away to New Orleans when they're teenagers, and Stella realizes she can pass as white and essentially, like, abandons Desiree and their mother, Adele. And the book is more or less how their lives play out and the fallout from, like, the choices that each of those twin sisters makes. Um, A couple weeks ago, I actually got to talk to Britt about writing the book, and that was a generally spoiler-free chat. Uh, Today, we're going to spoil it all. So if you haven't read the book and you hate spoilers, go listen to that episode instead, then read the book and come back. If you haven't read the book and you're like, I love spoilers. Awesome. Take a seat. Grab some snacks. We're glad to have you. Um, Before we start chatting, I actually think we could set the tone pretty well by listening to a couple of voicemails that we got, if y'all are okay with that, Um, because I don't know. I agree wholeheartedly with all of them, and I'm curious where you two fall to. So let's take a listen.
2: Hi, Nerdette. This is Claire from Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, hey,
3: Nerdette. It's Nicole from Toledo, Ohio. Hi, Greta. It's Anne from the Netherlands calling. This is Ava from Peoria, Illinois. This is Liz from Roseville, Minnesota, and I loved The Vanishing Half. Uh, this m- month's book was amazing. I really loved it. Oh, my goodness. Such a
4: good book. Loved it.
2: I love a book with a mystery or something to be discovered. So I had to keep picking up this book to find out how Stella's deception would play out.
3: I read many, many books per year and um, this is one of the top books of the year for me and uh, it will remain with me for a long time. The characters were so well developed and you could just like see them living their life. And that was just really amazing. It really did a
2: good job of showing a lot of how people are feeling now in the world that we live in even though it was a story that was set in the past.
1: Okay, stay safe and uh, until next time. Cool, bye. So yeah, as we were getting ready for this episode, we ended up just calling that the gushy montage because so it was sweet. just like everyone was so delighted by reading this book. What what did y'all think? Do you agree? Did you just love it? Oh
4: yeah, wholeheartedly.
1: Right? Yeah, she knows what she's doing. She just like there's such a.
2: I don't. I don't know how to explain it. Like when something is so simple that it's brilliant, she finds these little tiny adages that just ring so true, and they're. She has a really timeless way of writing, um, that's just wise and feel goody, but also um, really relevant. Yeah, it was amazing. From the
4: beginning, so true to form, you know, I'm, I work for Audible, so I'm not just plugging it. I listened to it, and I didn't read the physical copy.
1: Nice.
4: And it's narrated by Shana Small, um, who did an amazing job with it. And from the first chapter, the first couple of lines, it was, I think, it hooked me because it made me sad. It made me sad from the beginning. And I we could take our time getting to why I was sad, but it was so deeply, deeply saddened as I was walking and listening to it and going, okay, I definitely have to hear the rest of this because starting in this space that is so painfully uh, self-hating, Yeah,
2: I, I just had
4: to keep going. So yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Britt did an amazing job here.
2: Yeah. I don't think I've covered like self-hatred like this between twins like this. And there's like that four-year-old part of me that's like, ooh, twins, cool. <laughs> and that also kept <laughs> me going so much. I mean, I feel like everyone wanted wants to know that feeling of having this person that you've been joined to for your entire life. And then oh my gosh, seeing yeah. how the self-hatred really tears them apart was fascinating.
1: Well, and I think she did such an amazing job too of like, Like she establishes things so efficiently, you know, and I think it is speaking to that simplicity, Kylie, but there's a scene pretty early on. It's kind of a flashback when they're both kids and I forget which one of them she's like cutting vegetables and she cuts her thumb and starts bleeding. And the other girl immediately grabs it and puts it in her mouth just to like help keep the blood from like getting everywhere. And it was just like. It was such a perfect moment to illustrate how close these two girls were. That
2: one stuck out know? to me too. I remember Desiree sticks Stella's finger it's in Desiree? her mouth. Desiree. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. Stella goes, that's nasty. I love that. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> and yet
4: yeah. she said also she felt comforted by it. It was like, that's, that's the dichotomy there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was just so perfect. And I don't know. I mean, Kylie, I'm going to put you on the spot. I was going to save this question for later, but I decided we're just going for it. Let's I do mean, it. You are, you are the published author among the three of us. Can you tell us how the hell Britt did this? <laughs> no,
2: <laughs> especially because I think Brit's like 30 years old and this is her second. So that's pretty <laughs> impressive. So no, absolutely not. Especially because like, <laughs> I feel like, um, well, one thing, okay. I saw Ann Patchett speak maybe five years ago and she got on stage and she said something that really, really stuck with me. She was like, listen, everyone, every author, every person has 52 cards in their deck you can do one thing really well and like my thing is writing she was like I tell the same story over oh, and right. over again
1: it's like the stranger comes in yeah she and was like, like I yeah.
2: just have like a bunch of like people and I put them all in a room and they can't leave and like that's my story and I just keep yeah. doing it over and over again and of yeah. course I was like oh that's so sad because I I'm different and I'm gonna write a sci-fi novel and I'm gonna do this no I'm not uh-huh. like, every <laughs> author has their thing and I think that there's a really nice comfort in that and so Brit at like such a young age with establishing herself as someone who knows mothers and daughters. She has this parental like wise thing about her writing that makes you feel like you are both the parent and the child at the same time. And so I don't know if she's just like figured out what she's good at and is just using it to the best of her ability, but she's she's killing it right now and I think that a lot of other authors could could take something from that of saying, you know, what are my tendencies and where is my best writing at? And I think that she's found hers for sure.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I think what we should do is just kind of start from the beginning and just like chat as we go. Um, As a listener mentioned in the voicemails that we heard earlier, the crux of this plot is kind of around the mystery of like, we know very early on that Stella is gone. We don't know where she's gone or what has happened to her. Um, and we don't really find that out until about halfway through. And I like that reveal I thought was so exquisite. And so I think we should just kind of start from the beginning. If y'all are okay with that. Let's do it. Yeah.
2: Starts with a return, which is kind of
1: interesting. Yeah. We have Desiree. She's back. She, her daughter Jude is in tow. Um, she's back in Mallard, which is a town of light skinned black people who are, I mean, I don't know what's the it's like they're very proud of their status among this group, but they're still stuck in this like extremely disrespected group in America Mm -hmm. in the mid 50s. Is that like a fair way of putting that?
4: This is the part that I was saying made me sad. It was
1: yeah, it was
4: the recounting even how Mallard came to be and just the mentality of every single person within Mallard. And it just the. You know, I, I came of age in the late 70s and 80s, so, like, black is beautiful has always been a thing I've known. <laughs> you know, like, I've uh, heard of that sort of self-hating space where, but the idea of a town full of people who were so fixated on their proximity to whiteness right, really was just, it, it, it rocked me. Like, it did, and she, she did it in this way that was very real and wasn't just like oh this thing that happened back in the nineteen sixties okay cool. Um, it was a very real and present uh, feeling because it carried through, spoiler, throughout the book for everyone involved. You know, all the the mothers and the daughters that sense of the closer to lightness, the better.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. This was such like a interesting side effect of slavery that you don't typically get to see, which, you know, you typically see, oh, these families were torn apart. And it's this, all of these really violent, terrible over acts of racism. But the standards that these this community has for light skin is it comes out of slavery. And it's a way for them to feel good about themselves for them to find comfort in who they are and for them to have, you know, superiority over anyone else who might come into into that town and, those are all effects of racism and slavery that, I mean, they, they don't just go nowhere. I think that every marginalized group has a bit of those, even just like hearing, you know, women who identify as both feminists saying, oh, well, girls should do this. And it's like, but you only think that because a man thought it first, and it's so hard for you to get rid of that. And so I think this town is a perfect example of that.
1: Right. Because it's also very much a product of slavery and racism that they still aren't allowed in white spaces either. Or if they are, it's to clean homes. Right. Right. Like like that is still also very real and present, which it's it's such a fascinating kind of in between space that, you know, I think especially a lot of white people and historically in America, obviously, like race is considered a binary. Right. Like you're either black or you're either white. And I thought Britt did such a great job of capturing the fact that, like, it's actually just really complicated, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I completely agree.
2: It's such a strange thing. I got to interview Britt for Wall Street Journal, and we were talking about how, in this way, on one end, race is nothing because you can pretend to be another race. So if you can pretend something, it's nothing. On the other end, it's everything it's your hair, it's, the face of your shape, it's the music you listen to, it's the way you sound, it's your clothing. It, it can infiltrate everything, and so I think this town is a really nice symbol of that in-betweenness that is just as complicated and carries just as much, you know, pain and, and hatred and, and insecurity.
4: And every every society needs a hierarchy, right? And that's the whole thing. They get the mm-hmm. hierarchy of of blackness and and uh, having anyone come through the the minute that Jude. They start talking about Jude. I think I remember thinking I got I don't know how far into it. I I didn't know what Jude looked like besides her skin color, because that was the only yeah. thing they cared about was how dark and, she was.
1: And to be clear, right, it's that she is much darker than everyone else in this town. And it sets her apart from everyone her entire childhood as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we get a little bit of backstory on Desiree. She moved back home because she had been in D.C. and she had married a man who was extremely abusive and and i think does brit even say essentially that like desiree found like married the blackest man she could find
2: there that sounds familiar to me now that
1: i hear
4: it yes i think the other people in her life say that she did it out of spite for them. yes right i don't think she thinks about it that way though she's you know probably is attracted to it in that way
1: and then the other pieces that happen early on which are such great little breadcrumbs i think as we meet this guy named early jones and he's a oh man what is the word for the dude who looks for people oh it's a i was gonna say hunter but, that's know, not, but it is a hunter i think it's like a uh, oh man it's not an assassin is it <laughs> no he's not an
2: assassin <laughs> he's a nice person no early is wonderful I'm just, oh my gosh <laughs> i can't remember the name bounty hunter Yes. Wasn't it dog?
4: Wasn't it like dog, the bounty hunter? <laughs>
1: Thank you, Abby. Right, that's I'm what so... I meant. Yeah.
2: That, that was it.
1: <laughs> He's a bounty hunter. And, but he also finds missing people. And so what ends up happening is that Sam, the abusive husband asks early to find Desiree because Desiree has run away with their daughter, Jude, and he has no idea where they are. And so, which is so perfect because it turns out we get some backstory on early And he used to spend his summers in Mallard and actually had a crush on Desiree and would bring her fruit from the farm on the porch, which is like the sweetest childhood crush story that maybe I have ever heard. I
2: love that. Can you go find this girl? Oh, that girl? Okay.
1: Oh,
2: (laughs) (laughs) happy. And yeah, like the
1: moment when he opens the folder and sees her face and he's like, oh, my God, it's her. It's just so... It's so perfect. And I think another really important piece of backstory that we get in this first section, too, is the fact that, speaking of how devastating it is to still live in the world they live in, whether or not they, you know, feel superior to others, is the fact that the twins' father, Leon, was lynched. In front of them. In front of Uh, them. Yeah. Mm. Which, again, I think you know, just speaks very clearly to the idea that it's it's not as if the people who live in this town are, are any safer than anyone else in the world, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're only,
2: you know, they're only light skinned until someone else decides they're black right. and that is all that matters. And when it comes to Desiree and Stella already, they have this really tight bond of being twins and being together for so long. But then when something like this happens in front of your face with someone else, you are joined to them in a way that is unspeakable and just goes so far past emotions or, or likes or anything superficial. And they're just, it's, it's heartbreaking.
4: Mm-hmm. That, that shared trauma, like shared trauma is a, is a thing for everyone, but the shared trauma they have. And as, as, they, this is rolled out how they witnessed it. That's thinking of the two of them in a closet, hands over their mouths. I just it it it, it, it as a parent, as a person, as a human being, it just yeah, a human this being, this insane sense of wanting to protect them.
2: Mm-hmm. I think one of them says going back to like the town and like this the sobriety ha- they have, and one of them says, What did dad do? And yes, it's just like that is so ingrained in you to yeah. think that he must have done something and it's, it's tragic.
1: So the other pieces are that we find out that Stella and Desiree are essentially told once they finish their sophomore year of high school, that they're not going back to school anymore. They need to start working, which means they need to start helping their mother, Adele clean, clean the home of this DuPont family who live in like the nearby white town. And, um, and it seems like that's, Really the moment that kind of makes them realize they need to just get out of there, that they don't have the options they need there, especially because Stella was really looking forward to going to college. You know, like she was doing really well academically and had hoped that that would be an option for her. And it just became very clear that that wasn't going to be a thing. So they run away to New Orleans and... And you don't really know, you know, something happens there, but you don't really know what. Oh, and then Desiree and Early start hanging out. And Desiree asks Early to try to find Stella. Right, right. And that's kind of where we move locations and times from part one to part two. And we go, we jump ahead. Is it 20 years? No, it's 10 years.
4: Mm -hmm. I had a moment of joy for even that little freeze on of, you know, that early and desert. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> I just like, I needed that at that point in the story, just to have some sort of hope for goodness for Desiree. Yes. <laughs> that yes. Thing, that she really was still like, Oh yeah, there's still a thing between the two yeah. of them and how she gravitates to him and how he leans in and, I mean, she thinks he's going to like, I don't know, I thought he was going to kiss her or talk on her ear or say something like, I don't know
2: what, and then pulls the scarf. I'm like, Oh, 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 all of that. It was just so well done. Yes. Yes. And there's like a really like cheesy line to be had. I don't know what it is about how he like, wasn't early. He's just like right on time. It's just. Cute.
4: <laughs> all of it coming together was really interesting for me because they, because Britt had done such a good job of establishing Early's otherness, right? He he had separated right. himself from the world and was like, nope, <laughs> marriage is not for me. Woman settling down is not for me. And yet he didn't quite realize that he was like locked with this woman from the time he saw her picture again. That was it.
1: Right. That's it. I love that. Well, and the fact that too, he's also just literally an outsider in Mallard because he's also a dark-skinned dude. And so like, didn't their mom even call him oh, that yeah. dark-skinned boy? Like, yeah. And that was probably why Desiree, you know, why nothing ever really came of it the first time around, because it was made very clear to Desiree that that was not a viable option for her.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is funny, because later, it's like, obviously, he's an adult now, and he can make his own decisions. But when you're an adult, like, you want to put up with a whole lot less. But when you have these really strong feelings, like he does, it's really worth it to him. So it's very sweet.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is very sweet. And you're right Abby. I think that like one thing that's so beautiful about this book is that while there are so many devastating themes and ideas, there's also like just enough sweetness sprinkled into each section and each character's life that that like there are these moments of redemption throughout that make it I don't like fun to read even like, despite how hard it is also. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: I think you, you hinted at, you said as much earlier, it's, it's satisfying. It's wholly satisfying in a way that, you know, it, it, transcends any pat expected rollouts, right? You know, people don't just fall in line to little, to boxes. They're pretty well fleshed out. Everyone's got, you know, things, they, there are various points where I loved someone or hated them <laughs> because mm-hmm. they dumb or acted meanly, but, no one's a villain in some cartoonish way
2: it's right like, particularly yeah. for stories with black characters in them I mean I cannot do these stories where either someone is perfect hardworking, hustling all the time or they're just you know like uh worrying about being black. and it's like Through all of the worry, through all of the tragedy and everything, there's cute guys. There's what you're going to eat for dinner that (laughs) night. There's, you know, uh, oh, I need to go clean this. There's all of these other life things that you have to do. um, And and they're in here. So that's really great.
1: Yeah, it seems like you could almost just say that reading this book is sort of like the experience of a cute boy bringing you fruit. I mean, that's a really important moment. So. (laughs) More with Kylie and Abby about the vanishing half in just a minute.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO Original Limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer, Sundays, exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Okay, so let's jump ahead to part two, which is, it's a pretty big time jump. It's 10 years, and it's from Jude's point of view, uh, Desiree's daughter, and she's heading to UCLA on a track scholarship. And we get more of her backstory, which is that she was teased mercilessly in Mallard because of the color of her skin. um, and, and she meets this beautiful cowboy named Reese, who is also such a bright spot in this book, I think. And in the next chapter, we find out that Reese actually was born to Reese and Carter and kind of becomes Reese on his way from Texas to LA finally feels like he's in the position to be able to identify as male and, and live the life that he is meant to live.
2: I felt like a very adolescent reader, but he says that by the time that he gets to Tucson, that Therese felt like a costume and Tucson's my hometown. And I was like, Oh, yes, (laughs) (laughs) a great place to make a transition. So yeah. (laughs) And I also like love, I don't know, there's something about you know, I'm here at this time as this person. And as I make this journey, I'm going to end up being the person that I want to be. And there's such tiny examples of that. Um, in, in so many people's lives, this one's obviously extremely significant, but there's just something about using a transition to better yourself. And it sounds silly, but something I used to talk about my students about all the time, especially when you're young, like that is the time when you can change who you are for the better. I always encourage students like you do not have to be who you are right now in 15 minutes. That is up to you to decide these things. And I love that it's this road trip that brings him to this happier place to be who he wants to be.
1: Yeah, I think it's beautiful. I mean, there's also something kind of devastating about like, I think one of the big themes throughout this book is that often the farther you get from home, the easier it is to make those transitions. Right. And the mm-hmm. the fact that he does have to leave. And I think in a lot of ways, there actually are parallels between what he goes through and what Stella goes through. And and I think the outcomes are very different. But I think, you know, they're I both wrote that down,
2: too. Yes. I just they so both to had
1: say. to leave and kind of and like had to give up on their family in order to be who they who they thought they should be. I don't know. I guess that's the part where they do kind of diverge.
2: I I thought about this a lot and I think and we'll get into Stella obviously. I think that in my mind the biggest difference is, is like Reese is like this is who I am all the time. And for Stella it becomes this is the lifestyle that I want to live. And there's, you know, on one person's side, it's truth. And the other person's side, it's lying. And it, but it's still so similar, the way that they have to hide these things and separate themselves from their family. It's very fascinating. I really liked the differences there that you can see very easily. I, I got nothing to add to that because that is, <laughs> that's the fact. It's, I got to say that Reese
4: was possibly my favorite surprise in this book. I like it. I thought I knew so much about it because we'd done an interview on the site with her. And I, you know, I before I, Listen to the book i felt like i knew a lot about it mm-hmm. and i was like oh i didn't know anything about that it was amazing okay that's a great little and it wasn't like a it wasn't a gimmick it was such a really well read it through storyline that made sense and it made sense why jude would be attracted to him too just because uh very much what kylie just said he was very grounded in who he was yeah and she was still sort of searching and like you know we look for people who sort of complete or have the opposite the thing that we're missing and that certainty even in the midst of his trying to figure out the rest of the the, the package there it was just a beautiful thing mm-hmm. to watch
1: well and it reminded me too of um this is something renee said under book club group on goodreads which was that reese and early both are very gentle men And she says that's a facet of masculinity that seems a little more challenging to write, but is so impactful when it's done well. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something that was really beautiful about both of them, right? Is that they are just so steady in who they are and not in like a super assertive, aggressive, low voiced, you know, angry way, but just in like, they were both so peaceful and kind and lovely. Oh yeah, if any man can eclipse anger, and go into
2: this like peaceful groundedness. I'm like, "Excuse, hello, how are you?" Hey, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's very true. All those other quote unquote masculine traits, like they're
4: all is like they're both quite masculine, and all yes. traditionally think of them being masculine without the ag- aggro.
1: <laughs> yes, one hundred percent. Uh huh. Without being aggro, exactly. Um. So from there, we learn that. Jude hooked up with a racist fuckboy in Mallard it happens it's okay just move on no shame no hate we all so. make mistakes yes yeah. <laughs> and the other I think very like piece of fruit that we get in this storyline is Barry mm-hmm. who is a friend of Reese's who's he's a drag queen and he's just the best very solid it's like just one of those people that you like meet and you're like oh wait I think
2: we're gonna know each other for a long time okay let's do this yeah,
4: not, and not, and not just popping in with the either the wisecrack, not just the wisecracking best friend or the the all telling wise friend. He's he's all the components of friendship there. In
1: mm-hmm.
4: you know being there for both of them when they need him.
1: Yeah, we actually got a voicemail about Barry that I think we should listen to. Yeah. This is Liz from
3: Minnesota. A big thing for me is that I cannot stop think, thinking about the line that I think it was Barry said when he was talking about how the saddest thing it is is that we only have this one life to live, or we have this whole wide world and only one life to live. And it just keeps going through my head, the idea that I really do firmly believe that we do the best we can with the options in front of us at the time we have them, but there are so many paths and so many choices that we get to take, and I think it was incredibly apparent throughout this book um, how those choices define us and our lives, uh, the opportunities presented to us, the families that we create um, and that how different it would be when you do make that one tiny decision um, and what other lives could you be living?
2: Mm. Isn't that lovely? It was really lovely. I have to say Barry. Yes, that was really lovely. And I, Barry has that line and also his, you know, career as an actor and performer, it it broke my heart so much. I, this is why I love the Olympics. Probably. I love, I love anything. That's like the stakes are so high and you have like, if you're a gymnast, you have this 10 year period where your body is ready and that is it. And that is just where, you know, that's where your body is going to perform the best of its ability. And when you're 35, it is not going to just bounce back or anything. And that's just how life is. It is so fleeting in that way. And so Barry is a performer. I, I went to school for acting like 10 years ago. And it's so strange to to look back now knowing like, oh, like most of the people in my acting classes, they're not going to do this forever. Like this is it. Like we are all viewing this as, oh, I'm getting ready for my big career. But most of us, this is the peak right here. And that's heartbreaking and sad, but also there's something kind of beautiful in the, in the evanescentness of it. I don't know.
1: Well, yeah. And I think that kind of speaks to what Barry said too, right? Of like, It's a whole wide world. How devastating that we only get one chance at it. Mm -hmm. I I will say one thing that I really loved about this book was that there was no sort of like earth shaking reveal of of Reese being trans for Jude. Um, you know, like she wasn't shocked. She didn't have to, like, back off and get over it. It was just like a thing about Reese that. You know, I don't want to say didn't matter to her, but she just like wholeheartedly accepted without any like moralistic bullshit. Yeah, you
2: know? yeah. There's certain scenes that I'm just like over, and I just like don't want to see anymore. And I think that's one of them. Of like, oh yeah. wait, what? Oh Why god. To... Yeah, I'm over it. I still want to. Say it's boring. I don't want to see it anymore.
4: I think their long courtship, as it were, like helped you believe that on some level Jude kind of knew going in. There's going to be something, right? There's not going to be, you know, she knew him well enough to know who
1: he was, period. So that revealed not yeah. yeah. changing anything for her. Mm-hmm. So then the body parts didn't really matter. Yeah. No. Wow. Um, well, and it is partly because of Reese's identity, I suppose, that that the story moves forward just because a big reason why Jude decides to get a job is because she wants to be able to help save up money so that Reese can get top surgery. And that's what ends up. That's why Jude ends up becoming a caterer. And that's how she ends up at this holiday party in a really swanky house. And meets a sassy (laughs) university of Southern California student and gives her alcohol, even though she's underage. And, and then oh, it's just so good. The moment that she sees like the mirror image of her fucking mother in a fur ass coat like, and then drops the bottle of red wine. Like that would mess me up. Yes. Ah, I yes. be,
4: I'd be right. I mean, dropping a bottle of wine is the least of the things I would
1: do. <laughs> right?
2: yeah. I also love any, well, I love any book that really focuses on the jobs that you do when you're just trying to make it work. And there's yes. so many of them in this. Yeah. And, the catering job i don't this is probably showing that i've had a lot of service jobs i felt <laughs> so much more frustrated with kennedy the young woman who wants a drink than yeah. anything else because in that moment when you are a black service person you don't know am i going to get in more trouble for giving this girl a drink or am i going to get in more trouble because i didn't give this girl a drink and like never get a job and just that stress I I was stressed before Stella even came around. I was like, this is bad all around. Like, these are things that a lot of black women have to incorporate into their work life that they shouldn't have to. It should just be like, either do this or you do this. But that is what service life is a lot of the time.
1: Right. Like, what are the actual rules at play here? Because some of them are written down and a lot of them aren't. And you're supposed to know all of them.
4: Yes. Sizing up who she was talking. Who was Kennedy talking to? Oh, she's talking to that guy. He's an important guy. He's like, you're like, you're like assi- assessing the proximity to importance. And again, assessing your job at all times.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: I was stressed. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and then poor thing, she drops his glass of wine and that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: Um,
1: yeah. Well, she loses her job. Sassy is, is, is the kind word. For- <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. I, I accept that. What, what word would you use? Abby? pain in the ass oh my god so aside from being very stressed out in that scene did either of you see that reveal coming in that moment
2: I'm trying to remember
1: did you see it coming Greta I think I knew something was gonna happen but I wasn't I was not clever enough to be like, oh, the catering job is the perfect vehicle for her to meet an alluring stranger who looks very much like her mother, mm-hmm. um, which was great. Cause I love, I loved being surprised by that. Yeah. You know, it was, it was such a great surprise. And, you know, of course the fact too, that it takes place long ago enough that she can't just go and Google them when she gets home. Also, I think, you know, like it's so interesting thinking about stories like this and if they would work in 2020.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think that's partly what's so fascinating about this one is that, It's still a time where, you know, if someone writes down their phone number and gives it to you on a piece of paper and you lose the piece of paper, that's it. There's yes. not a whole lot you can do, and that adds so much to the mystery of all of it. In mm-hmm. again, such a satisfying way. Yeah.
2: I kept thinking about that with Barry when he was like doing his job and asking people, like, "Do you know her? Do you know her boyfriend? Is she?" Have the-? And I was like, if it was now, I'd be like, "I'm not telling you anything. You are a bad person. I'm not talking to you." I'd be like, "Why don't you just Google her? That is so straight It's just such a different world where right? it's okay to yeah. ask about somebody and seeing someone in this way. You don't know if you're going to see them again, so it is a huge deal." I kept
4: thinking about that technology part when it came to like uh, both Stella and then later Jude going like, "Yeah, you know Mallard is you know, no one's ever heard of Mallard. You can't you can't find it on a map. You can't like today you you could totally find Mallard. <laughs> you could figure right.
1: it right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Google Mallard. it." <laughs> so at this point, we're pretty much halfway, and we go into part three, and we meet a grown-up Stella for the first time. We meet White Stella for the first time. Yes. And I don't know about you two. One thing I'm really curious to ask you is. And I like I was shocked at how racist she was, you know, like the first scene we see her is it's at like a homeowner's like a neighborhood meeting and they're a black couple is thinking about moving into the house across the street. They want to buy the house. And Stella is by far the most outspoken person against this idea. And it really surprised me and I don't know how much of that is just like my own you know naive perspective as a white girl but like girl I wasn't surprised at all <laughs> you weren't surprised at all I had a feeling I,
2: I wish was I was but no there is yeah. something that is so fair but there is something that comes with all of those years of trying to hide who she is mm-hmm. it has to come out somewhere yeah. Yeah. and everything that she is saying about why she doesn't want Black people there, that those are all the reasons that she, that she has transitioned, that she doesn't want people thinking that about her. And I, you know, it's been a really strange and interesting time as the protests continue, um, seeing how people show their insecurities. I will be, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say a hot take. There are so many Black writers and authors who have denied their blackness until now, until they get book sales from it. And there are people on the other side of that who suddenly, you know, they're, they're not really black. You know, blackness is this thing that you can throw on like a cloak sometimes. And Stella and her racism, it is practiced. It is in her. She, there's a lot of years of therapy that need to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There is no amount of therapy that's going <laughs> to
1: Well, and I do think it speaks to something both of you mentioned early on in the book, too, which is just that like deeply internalized self-hatred, you know. And I think once I like actually thought about it, it was like, oh, yeah, of course, she can't be the person like at the MLK march or whatever right. like, that that to a certain extent, I guess, defeats the purpose It's just so devastating to see that, like, that that's the only way that she feels like she can become this new person is by completely, you know, and the fact that, like, like, there's that line about how her husband, like, her, her white dude husband notices that she, like, won't even make eye contact with black people in the street. Like, she, it's just so... It's just so hard to see. Mm -hmm. She literally, it's like, she can't look
2: in a mirror. She can't, like, face it at all. It's terrifying. And it's it's,
4: it's so, it's, I I guess it didn't surprise me for all the reasons that you said, but also because it's so clearly motivated by fear. Her fear is palpable through everything. The fear of getting caught, the fear of ever having to return, the fear of losing what she's, you know, managed to accumulate in terms of family and life and status and, and in her own sense of safety, in all the ways, you know, thinking back to the, the 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 man who would grope her in the house when she cleaned, to the her thoughts about the riots, like her sense and need for safety, that was motivating everything, along with the racism.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Did I tell you that I had a grandma who passed all the time? No. Yeah. <laughs> My grandma, who I dedicated my book to, I love her a lot. She died about two years ago. Um, she was very, very light skin. Um, and she had hair like mine, but it was gray. And so she would straighten it. And I remember very vividly being like eight or nine. And if we would walk into a store, depending on what store it was, she would say, Get away from me. Get away. From- I'm passing. Oh, hello. How are you? <laughs> no. Wow! Or like, if we wanted something, we would like send her in without us, and so I mean, <laughs> and
4: you know what? That plays into something I'm going to ask. I, we're not there yet yes. about the neighbor because that sense of yes. the, the family, and the kids going like, you know, we could use this. This could work, and you know, look <laughs> out for her. And I still have a sense that I can't remember the neighbor's name, Loretta. Loretta. Yeah, I always get the sense that Loretta kind of knew. And she was just like, all right, girl, I see you. Yes.
2: Yes. I felt the same. Yes.
1: Do you think it would have been satisfying to actually see that scene? Or do you think it would have been too satisfying? Because so much of it is that like Stella never knows who knows. And that's partly what's agonizing. It would have been her. too satisfying for me. i like, I want it. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's a really good question. And I think that one, it would have been too satisfying. But two, you got to keep your cards close to your chest. Mm-hmm. And it would have been a little bit out of character. So yeah.
1: That piece of fruit would have been a little overripe.
2: (laughs) Yes. I just want to say too, I think this was my favorite section. I think that this was the best part in the book for me for a lot of reasons. Um, When Stella has to deal with having a Black neighbor for the first time, because there's all of this racial history that she is dealing with and all the self-hatred. But on a surface level, there's just the difficulty of making friends as an adult woman. (laughs) And I was very into watching that and just those little like, oh, well, well, this was fun. Do you? Well, I if you want to hang out, then okay, well, just like that, that little awkwardness between them and kind of that little jolt you get when you have a new exciting relationship and you don't want to be too much or too little. I thought that was
5: really, really nicely done.
1: We have a voicemail about it. Let's listen to it. This is Brooke from Ferndale, California.
5: I am loving the vanishing half. I'm not done yet, but I wanted to make a voicemail anyway because I was so disturbed when Stella went and yanked her child away from her neighbor's daughter and then went in the house and said, you can't play with her because of the N word. And I was so, so appalled when she stood up at her homeowners association meeting And basically was like, don't let those people in. And I get that she was afraid of being found out that she's kind of living this lie. But as a mother, I can't imagine not wanting to teach your child about equality or, I mean, even to bring that into her child's life. So that's my take on it. Loving the book. Um, I'm an identical twin sister, so I assigned this as homework to my identical twin sister too, and we both can't wait to listen to the book club. That's so sweet. <laughs> right? I love that it's homework. It yeah. makes me very I happy. love
2: that she was reading and was like, I need to make a call. I need <laughs> to make a call
1: right <laughs> now. And like, this isn't optional, right? Like, hey, sister, you have to do this now. I love it. <laughs> it. just makes me very happy. One
2: of my favorite parts was at the end of that chapter, when you, after they their friendship is terminated, and the, someone throws a brick in their house and the little girl is, is injured. And they find out that one of the white neighbors did it. And then Blake says how terrible that was because this isn't Mississippi. And it's like just in that tiny little interaction, you're saying the way that you felt racism is not okay because you're trash and you're poor, but the way that I feel racism is established and, and polite and I do it in an insidious way. I, By like making sure that someone doesn't live here. She said about it that he
4: like, he just wants everyone to get along.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
4: And just yeah. get along and, and just uh, I'll stay in mind. We'll be good.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there were a couple of really well-written, like pretty short moments also, like right when they're moving in, where they're sort of like, why would this man even fight so hard to be here? Like, isn't it just going to be really hard for him? And the same when they talked about where they were going to send Cindy to school. Right. Because there was conversation, I think it was only among, like, Stella and the white ladies about how the fact that, like, Cindy's mom Loretta was fighting to get Cindy into the same school where all their kids went. Mm -hmm. And, And there was, like, even talk of a possible lawsuit. And they were all just like, but why would you, like why would you want that? Mm-hmm. There's a perfectly good school for black children that they can bus to or whatever. It was just like, right. You want
2: to send your kid there? I don't think right. like, as soon as you want to hear what people really think about racism, ask them about where they can send their kids to school. That is like education just holds so much history and pain and, and racism in it. And that is where it really, really comes out a lot of time and in this chapter too. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And I, I wish I was surprised, but then not surprised by how quickly everything escalated for for Loretta and her husband in that neighborhood. Like, it was like, okay, cold shoulders, cold shoulders, bricks through the window. and Yeah.
2: Really? Okay. Right, right. It was, that was a lot very, very quickly. But also, like, it's so, like, when you think from Stella's point of view, it's like,
1: they leave, like, girl, you gotta stay here. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: These are the people, well, these are your people.
1: Yeah, that's the other piece that, again shouldn't have surprised me but did is the fact that like she doesn't even and we talked about this a little bit like she doesn't even get to enjoy being white you know like like yes she gets to like drink day drink and float around in the pool that sounds pretty chill (laughs) but like she's miserable you know it's not as if she's she's constantly afraid she's constantly insecure she's constantly double checking everything she says she can't trust everything anyone like I don't, and and I know that Brit Bennett talked about how much you know like she has written a book about passing but she didn't want it to be a morality tale because that's what so many of those stories are and and I think she did a really good job of capturing the nuance of what it was would be to be Stella but it still seems like it's miserable mm-hmm. doesn't it mm-hmm.
2: there's so yeah it's like for what for what are you doing this for and The levels of happiness that you're reaching when you're at your peak white, are they (laughs) like that high even like what was last time you were truly happy. But I think when you're lying yourself for so long, you're not really sure how you're feeling after a while. And you're probably telling yourself like, well, I'm getting everything I want. So I, I must be happy when that's not really the case.
1: Well, and I think there are plenty of stories, too, about people making sacrifices for their children. I think maybe you could make yes. the argument that that's one reason why Stella did what she did is so that she could have a daughter who who didn't have that fear. But then Kennedy turns out to be so entitled and insufferable also that then like,
4: yeah, you yeah. know, like she was exactly gung ho to be a mom to begin with. Like, that's was, true. Like her, that's she, very true. She was dying to do, you know, it was actually the thing that could potentially sell her out if that kid came out and didn't pass a paper bag test like she was gonna be in a lot of trouble so her coming to that space where it was about keeping kennedy comfort you know comfortable and happy i don't know i don't know that i buy that it was for her family's sake Mm, yeah i've been thinking about so much whether she did she win what did she win this
1: right do you have an answer for that, Abby? <laughs> <laughs> What's the prize? <laughs> did you figure it out? <laughs> her realizing that, oh, all
4: it takes to be white is that I just act like I am? Cool. I'm going to do that. I'm just going to act like I am. This it, Whiteness was an idea and she won the idea, but the idea did not actually equate to happiness for her.
2: Mm, right. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that you, when you say it like that, I'm like, oh my gosh, that happens in so many other instances of, well, I won that guy, so I did it. Or... I got that job, so I did the thing I was supposed to do. So I, this this must be it. And the fact that you're miserable every day with the thing that you've always wanted, uh, it doesn't feel what you thought it would feel like.
1: Well, it's always a moving target, right? Yeah, like, there's always something else. Yeah, that's why we must look within. Exactly. <laughs> Once you're white, what else do you want? <laughs> that's it. I mean literally any friend would have been nice for her I would guess. That's true. That's true. She well me shit, yeah. <laughs> literally anyone who knew her at all. Right. Probably. There is that. <laughs> That's pretty much the end of uh part 3. And part 4 jumps ahead in time again and now we're in 1982. And Jude is studying for the MCAT. She wants to go to med school and she's still in LA and she goes to see Barry in a play. And there's that insufferable white girl from the party who she has kind of pieced together must be her cousin at this point. Um, And, and, you know, again, this is a time jump. So like it becomes clear that Jude has kind of been obsessing over Stella and what happened to her and and where she is and again couldn't google it or look Kennedy up on Facebook and so it was just sort of this thing that was like constantly eating away at the back of her mind um and then Kennedy just sort of like appears in her lap at this show
5: Mm -hmm.
1: and that's when Jude gets uh another kind of grunt job as you mentioned before Kylie she decides to become an usher at the theater so she can get to know Kennedy better right
2: I love that Kennedy uh like ask her for help whenever she shows up for help. She's like, Oh, oh thanks.
1: <laughs> oh, zip it me up? It's just like, Oh my
2: God. Right. Clearly you were sent here to help me right now. Right. <laughs> okay. I am going to have, this is the part of the book that I'm going to have a hot take. You guys oh, are good. Ready. Uh-huh. I think that everything that I loved so much leading up a little bit in this chapter, it took a little bit more uh, stretching for me. I think that, um, the role of the annoying entitled white girl has been done so many times that there had to be something a little bit different for me. And I felt a little bit like I wanted something a teeny bit more from this dynamic of this perfect Jude, like going to be a doctor character and this Mm. annoying white girl who wants to be a superstar. I think that was the one part that I was wondering what what I was missing there and I felt very validated in that uh Ayana Mathis who was one of my uh, instructors at Iowa did a review and felt the same and I even <laughs> I was like nervous to say this point so I like proved up pulled up <laughs> receipts just so I, I am not the only one <laughs> I mean the novel is beautiful so I don't really feel that bad saying like this was like a little bit different but uh, yeah. Ayana I even pulled it up and she says it much better than I do Yeah. So it seems like she, Jude is slightly obsessing over, like I saw this person who literally just like my mom. And I think this person is my cousin, but it seems like a lot of her desires that to know this person and uncover this, I felt like those were Desiree's desires more than they were Jude's at some point. Um, So I think that and the combination of, of Kennedy being, you know, maybe it's because I went to school for theater and I recognized a lot of her and a lot of girls. (laughs) That was the one part that I was like, I think I want a little bit more from this. I don't know if I'm alone on that.
1: I hear you. I think I mean, yeah, I wish Kennedy hadn't been so like unequivocally awful, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think later on you do get enough of a sense of how hard it would have been to have Stella as a mom. Because she was so inscrutable and like, you know, the fact that, I mean, how old was Kennedy when she realized her mom was just like actually lying? Mm -hmm. She was like six or seven, I think. And like, I do think that would be really hard. And I think that explained some of Kennedy's just like feeling so uncomfortable and, and not knowing why but I don't know that it justified her being as horrible as she was. Mm. And you're totally right that they're like pretty obvious tropes, Mm. you know, I think, I
2: think maybe I was looking for some of the spot on racism that, that Blake had and saying like, Oh, those trashy people, the way that they do racism is I was, I think I was looking for Kennedy to have a refined feminine way of, of having those same racist instincts in really specific way um maybe it's probably because i love class interactions yeah i don't know abby what do you think
4: um you know i well I, I just like i just went for as straightforward as as two girls who were playing out their mother their their mother angst and their mother problem mm. with each other mm. you know like clearly you know yes d- uh jude was definitely doing all of this in some bid for her mother like because her mother had wanted it initially because she hated the fact that her mother stayed in Mallard, that she felt like she had been robbed, but yet this other woman got to do this. And maybe, if, you know, somehow this would correct some past wrong. And, yeah, uh, Kennedy was screwed up <laughs> by Stella. Mm-hmm. Just completely, that, that withholding nature that Stella completely had and clearly had with her, that's going to produce that kid. That kid,
1: mm-hmm.
4: yeah, it, it, you know, and it may look a little different depending on less, you know, middle class wealthy versus very wealthy versus whatever. That kid is going to only embrace the things that are statusy in that space because, and, and it doesn't seem like Blake was like the he could mitigate the loss of that mother love. Like right. that dad was gonna be like, yeah, let me take you in and like give you all the love you need. He was like the hands off. I work a lot. Here's a for car. Dinner. Here's a car. Yes. Here's your second car too.
1: Yeah,
4: um, He's that dad. So like, she didn't have that mother love. So I actually, I see what you're saying, but it, it didn't ring out as much for me because I was, I was so busy maybe coming from a m- maternal angle. Look at how they were both like playing that other mom need out. I
2: totally see that. And I also really appreciated that Kennedy's mommy issues were not swept under the rug. I think mommy issues do not get enough screen time,
1: page time, (laughs)
2: because they exist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I will say, though, is like, Kylie, don't you think if you had grown up I mean, one, feeling like an outsider in the town you grew up in and also to hearing about this mysterious twin sister of your mom's who like disappeared. And then you have an opportunity to spend a bunch of time with that person's kid. Even if that kid is a nightmare, don't you think you would like I can totally picture myself weaseling in and just like reporting the sh- out of that, yeah. you know, and just yeah. like asking all the questions and like realizing that that person is insufferable. And maybe that's what I missed from the book is like just a little more of Jude and Barry does it enough, maybe talking about how Kennedy is terrible, but maybe if we just had more of Jude, like rolling her eyes when Kennedy wasn't looking like maybe that would have helped a little. But like, I for sure think I would spend time with a nightmare human. But would you if it meant that I could like piece the puzzle together a little more? But would you clean toilets for it? (laughs) no, no, I would not clean toilets for it. I
2: think you may have sold me. And I also feel like if it was me now, it would have been turning that phone recorder on, putting it in my pocket,
1: going right? in. Yeah,
2: yeah I, yeah, I would have been into that. You're right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, I, I, as a nosy person, I like, I would totally be there. Yeah. And I cleaned <laughs> so many toilets. I'd be like, what's one more? Let me just get something out of it. <laughs> I'm with you. Ugh, so... I just wonder, how do you feel about where their relationship ended up? Uh, I
2: was pretty satisfied.
1: You were with, satisfied? Yeah.
2: I just think that the Kennedy chapter, I felt a little, maybe it was because the other ones were really, really hitting me that that one left yeah. me a little bit. But um, I really liked the end with Stella coming back. So I felt, I felt pretty good
1: about that. Yeah. It. Yeah. I do think there was a really fascinating moment going back to the Kennedy stuff where, um, where she like laughs off the the hierarchy of blackness and when when jude tells her about it yeah that was just extremely indicative of a lot of things i thought was really well done where she's just like but that's crazy essentially (laughs) just like yeah it's cute that you get to have that perspective Mm -hmm. you know also you
2: do this all the time like everything has a hierarchy like from Hair to bodies to like every like everyone does this. It is not that crazy. You no, know,
4: it, it it clearly illustrates the idea that non black people have that blackness is a monolith, right? It's like well, you're
2: all the same. <laughs> what are you talking?
5: About?
2: <laughs> you guys are doing this wrong. You doing this whole black thing wrong. Just like be cool with each other. <laughs> uh,
1: so from there, Kennedy, uh we jump ahead a little bit more. She moves to New York. Days of Black Guy. Oh God, that was a mess. And Stella calls him uppity, which is extremely upsetting. Yeah.
4: He might be my least favorite <laughs> character in this book.
1: Oh really? Why? Because there's a lot going on there. Yeah.
4: That's fair. Yeah, they don't.
1: It's it's all pretty surface level too. I feel like.
4: And he has her use the N word in
1: in bed. Like, there's a
4: whole lot
0: going on there. You
1: know, I completely erased that from my memory. Now that you mention it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It seems like a weird manifestation of her
2: own mommy issues. It's like she likes to date people who hate themselves and like to see it through her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. He sucked. Get rid of him. Various iterations of,
4: of white girls ahead of her. Like it was just like there was so much going on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I also just like on a surface thing, like he just did not believe in her at all. And I was also like, okay, so, you know, this is probably another thing too. Like your mom doesn't really support you doing this. That doesn't mean that you should be with the guy. Every Everyone needs therapy is what I'm trying to say. Everyone.
1: <laughs> oh. I feel like that's a really nice, I was going to ask y'all later what the moral of this book is, but I think we just got there. I think it's just that everyone needs therapy. <laughs> Myself included. Yes.
2: Everyone.
4: Thinking about how, how she's still carrying through so much of her mom, mom's traits, like, you know, that she's on this Hit show apparently for however long. And right, Pacific Coast did not even mm. call her by her name, and she was like, you know, embarrassed to tell anybody. Is because they just never got to know her name or got to. Know her. Yeah. That, there was that still she was having a separation from people issue, that you know just goes back to her mother. Like, God, mother yeah. issues are just. Sure, <laughs> they don't go
2: away. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's really valid and. I remember when so she's grown up in New York. And then when Jude and and Reese come in and say hi to her and they end up going to dinner or drinks with her. She's working at a coffee
1: shop, which I actually really loved that she was the one working that time. You know, like those tables kind of turned, which I thought was very nice to see. Yes, and very,
2: like, common of the acting career. That is what you do, what you have to do. So I thought that was very, very good. There was a lot of theater acting things that seemed really spot on in this. Um, but when when Kennedy and France go to dinner with Jude or drinks with Jude and, and Reese, they have this whole night, and France is being really sweet to them. And then later, she's like, those aren't, like, my real friends. And he's like, oh, I know, because you don't have any Black friends. If you know that, why are you dating? Yeah. Like, what are you using her for? Yeah. I think that they both had too many issues and were getting really unhealthy things from each other in that relationship. You did
4: ask earlier if you were, were happy with where they ended. And I oh, yeah, of, I do like their um, semi antagonistic cousin space. Like, there yes. are. I, mm. I recognize that. Like, yeah. I, like, I don't personally have it, but I, I know that dynamic in the real wild world. And that that made sense to a certain extent, given that they've now known each other 15 years at least or something, and so they have history, um, there's a shared understanding, even though not necessarily the same total backstory. So I, I really did like where they ended up, whereas that dynamic makes me uncomfortable. I could never be in that sort of dynamic with someone I <laughs> claim to love or care about, but I get it. It made sense.
2: Yes. When they call each other, it's like it's like a probation officer is <laughs> calling a little bit. It's like, we're not friends, but obviously something like, who died? Like, what happened? Like, are you okay? And I think that that is really familiar to a lot of familial but not, like, friendly relationships. I thought that was great.
1: Well, yeah, because, I mean, it kind of reminded me of, like, a sibling relationship almost, which I think maybe makes sense if your aunts are, like, kind of the same person in a way, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you... I Imagine that would make you like closer, more confusing twin cousins than like normal cousins mm-hmm. just because your moms were sort of the same, but not at all, obviously, right? You know? Right, and then the fact that they like remind each other of each other's mothers, also, I like I found to be quite comforting and kind of lovely. Where it's just like, I love yeah. that they, you know, they basically birthed each other's kids. <laughs> Right, right. Which is like, I will say, that's one of my biggest fears of having children is that I'm going to end up with a kid just like my obnoxious little brother, and I'm going to have no idea what to do with it.
4: (laughs) My daughter is my sister. Like,
1: really? Yeah, see, I feel like it happens a lot.
2: It's kind of funny, because I think a lot of people's parents have siblings that they're like, oh, my mom doesn't talk to her sister for like seven years, and you don't really think about it. But in this situation, it's like, they were so close. It's all they thought about. Yeah, they went so far. Mm -hmm. That it's a huge deal and this is something that's going to be a part of their lives no matter what and so it's part of our lives too. And it's the point that yeah. it's lore it's not just like family lore it's like a town's lore it's like
4: yeah it's not just our little family thing it's now it's something that transcends all of that and so Jude grew up with it in a way that was all-encompassing.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think speaking of the fact that it's the town's lore, that's partly what I love so much about one of the things that happens in this final section, which is that Mallard ceases to exist. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, you couldn't find it on a map before, but now it's like not even a thing. It becomes incorporated into, I forget what county or whatever, but it's just like, you know, the fact that when Stella finally does go back... It's the idea that it's not even a place anymore. I just think is so perfect.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Especially because Stella has been trying to hide where she's from this entire time. And it's like, well, it's not on the map anymore. Is your
1: life better? Did you get what you wanted? Yeah. <laughs> probably right. not. Yep. Nope. So yeah. What did you think about? Gosh. So Desiree and Early had been gone somewhere, right? And they come back and there's a white woman on their porch, <laughs> which I thought was such a perfect. And and it turns out to be Stella, she's come home finally. Yes. And
2: And Adele who has Alzheimer's is like, Oh,
1: she's been here. Yeah. (laughs) Which is also so perfect. It was really good. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Adele having her Alzheimer's issues was painful. I mean, I, I feel like all of us in some spaces had, you know, relatives or loved ones with Alzheimer's
2: and it was like, Oh yeah, that's familiar. Yeah. It was kind of a perfect storm because her memory lapses were totally believable and it was never like something like insane that hadn't happened. It was things that have happened the whole time. And it reminds me of when you are like in college and you go home and you feel frustrated that your family is like, oh, but you love this. And you're like, no, I'm a different person now. I'm cool. Uh. Stop it. Oh. Yes. And so Stella comes back and on one end, Desiree is like, what? On the other end, her mom's like, oh, she never left. And in a way you can't ever leave who you came from. And so this whole time she's been, you know, doing this mental gymnastics every day of being somebody else. But to this one person, she's, she's been the same that she's always been.
1: Well, and even without dementia, like Stella's presence throughout this book in Mallard Mm. was very tangible, even though she was already long gone too, right? Like the fact that she was gone like, it wasn't like that space just disappeared. It was like, there was always an outline of Stella where she should have been more or less. Right, right. One
2: thing I really appreciated was that Desiree just kept working at the diner. Yeah. I, it wasn't like she moved up to be a manager and then she sold a chain of Desiree's <laughs> diners that lined the Mississippi River. Like, I just did not want it to be like, this black woman does the epitome of this job. There is nothing wrong with her doing this job that she enjoys. And I really liked seeing her stableness there. And, and I felt like that honored the truth of many people's situations in a really nice way.
1: Well, and she and early both, you know, Mm -hmm. like they both just work and it's not like they retire on and rest on like huge retirements or whatever. They just like, they just work and, and they're not miserable about it. They're not super downtrodden. Mm -hmm. It's just the thing they do. Right.
2: Right. I like that a lot.
1: Yeah. Um, let's listen to another voicemail. This is Sarah from Eugene, Oregon, who has a great question. One thing that I loved about it in particular is,
3: um,
4: as many people have commented, it plays with all of these binaries and also these
3: dyads, so race and gender and um, skin color and uh, men and women and and lots of different things. But my favorite thing about that was how it shifts the meaning of the title. And so, initially you
4: think the vanishing half is, of course, Stella and the half of this twin that leaves. Um, but you also have Reese, who's left behind his childhood self, and that is the vanishing half of his life that he's trying to erase. Um, and you even with the grandmother at the end and her dementia, her life has a, this vanishing half to it. And so I I really like the way that those diads and binaries are, are in the book in a general sense, but also the way that they inform and change and shift
2: how we can interpret the title.
1: So... With that, what do y'all think? What do each of you think the title refers? I think she said it better than I could have. I was like, "Ah, oh, <laughs> that's good." It was funny because as we were planning out this episode earlier, my producer or our executive producer was like, "Did you did you have an ask, Britt? What the title meant? Because that would be great to play." And I was like, "No, man. <laughs> Obviously, I should have. That would have been great." Uh, And both of you had opportunities to speak with her. Did either of you ask her what it meant? Did we all not ask her? We were just like, we love the book. (laughs)
4: Give Sarah credit on this because that was good.
2: That was really good. Right. Uh, I did not uh, apply it to Adele. Yeah. And that's really beautiful. Yeah. This is part of your brain that's a little bit fleeting. And yeah, that's really beautiful.
1: I wonder if if it ends up just being the fact that actually there are no binaries and that's why the half is vanishing. Cause it's just not, mm. it's not ever that simple, you know,
2: mm-hmm. like it mm-hmm. just is
1: what it is. And that's it.
2: That's deep. That's deep. That is deep. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks y'all. And something that comes to mind too is, is this, you know, the fallacy of the one drop rule. Right. Um, and I remember I got my 23 and me results back And I'm 56% West African. And I had this feeling in me that felt really sad that my child would probably only be like 27% black. What does that matter? Like, what does that matter? And what does that mean for their life? Because in so much of life, whatever race you are is decided by the group that you join. And I think that numbers are really interesting when it comes to how we identify who we are.
1: Yeah, I think on that note, we actually have one more voicemail that I think will kind of help tie things up a little. This is Carrie from Boston.
5: First of all, I loved it. Um, I think that Britt Bennett's use of language is exquisite. And I was particularly taken with how she examined um, how these social categories that we've created, things like gender and race,
2: are simultaneously hollow but also super significant. Um, And along with that, I really liked how she explored this idea that humans have a huge capacity for change, and that in some situations that change can feel like a breath of fresh air, it can feel like liberation,
3: and in some contexts and to some people, it can feel like betrayal. Um, So I loved the book, and I am
2: loving having these book clubs to rely on during the quarantine, so keep up the good work.
1: I think that kind of echoes what you had said, Kylie, too, right? Yeah, that was that was a good voicemail. Um <laughs> Bring back voicemails. Normalized voicemails. They're really good.
2: <laughs> but every if ever, anyone ever leaves me one, I'm like, ah, oh, just text me. Jesus. You know, right?
1: <laughs> like, well, so. and it's funny because they email these to us and like even that feels better than like actually checking. Yes. Normalized
2: <laughs> emailing voicemails. That's what it is, I think.
1: <laughs> okay, so before I let you two go. We always do a thing where we come up with an arbitrary book based rating system and we were torn about what to do with this one. I think maybe we should do like fresh peaches, though, because who doesn't love a fresh peach? Um, So I don't know. Let's do to 10 because 10 is such a nice number and it's double digits. So if you could rate this book from one to 10 fresh peaches, how many would you give it? Probably goes first. No, I'm just <laughs> <go> first. <laughs> do you want me to go first? I can go first. Yeah, so y'all yes. think about it. Um, I think I'm going to do a straight ten. Honestly, like um, I know it wasn't perfect, but it was just such an engrossing read in so many different ways, and I was so grateful to read it during such a time of unrest right now, also, and to think of it as part of a bigger conversation about race and. And what that means in this country. And it's it's not preachy. And it's not shamey. But it's just really enlightening. And I'm really grateful for that. So I'm going to give it 10.
4: You know what? I'm going to do a 9.5 only because I've, I've had really strict professors. And so, <laughs> and I'm definitely doing a 9.5. Uh, I would do a 10 on performance for sure with um, Shayna Small because uh, i'm basing this on the audiobook because uh-huh. it's a performative experience that is different like all audiobooks can be very different than picking up the physical copy as kyla Kelly, and i talked about with her book as well <laughs> like it's it's a different experience but yet you're taking it in in a different way and that performance means a lot for how people yeah. can can um experience it so yeah i would say uh I'm going to go with nine and a half peaches. Uh, It's just really good storytelling. It's really good storytelling. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was good. I'm going to be really difficult and say. I'm going to do like a two decimal point rating of peaches. Is that what's about to happen? Yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) I'm going to say for, I'm going to say the same as Abby for a story. I give it a 9.5 peaches. It was incredible. I wanted to read it. From the very beginning, I feel like it really just like, I don't know, there's something so satisfying with both the pitch of this book. Oh, it's these twins and one of them passes and one of them doesn't. What? Give it to me. Like immediately you're just like enthralled with that. And then the story just really didn't let up till the very end for me on that way. So I'm going to say 9.5 for story. And
1: then for writing, I'm going to give her a 10. Yeah, yeah. I don't think a lot of people can do this. So that averages out to a 9.75 from each of you actually yes so that's pretty great Just that saying. means between the three of us it's a 9.875 <laughs> fresh peach that is the most math I've done <laughs> quarantine well done <laughs> well done well Abby Kylie thank you so much this was really really a pleasure to unpack with you two.
2: this was so fun thanks for having me
1: it's great super fun thanks for having me on Alright, I hope you enjoyed this month's book club. I know I sure did. I am very excited to tell you that our July book is called Last Tang Standing. It is by Lauren Ho, and I picked it pretty much because the marketing materials for the book described it as a cross between Bridget Jones's Diary and Crazy Rich Asians, which sounds like the perfect summer read. The show is produced by me, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull, and our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. If you want to keep in touch with Nerdette, you've got options. You can follow us on Instagram for book reviews. We're at Nerdette Podcast there. You can also join our Goodreads group by searching for Nerdette Book Club. And if you want a delightfully curated list of things to cook and read and watch and do, you should sign up for our newsletter. It comes out every Friday morning and you can sign up for it at wbez.org slash nerdetteaf. All right. Talk to you later.